Today's edition of Travel with Rick Steves is dedicated to the intrepid traveler who's looking for a destination that's just a few steps off the beaten track. I'm Rick Steves, and coming up, we'll visit what I consider one of Europe's most underrated and undiscovered countries, Bulgaria. This fascinating land is one of the newest members of the European Union, and yet it's one of the oldest countries in Europe where you can still experience a crossroads of cultural influences dating way back to pagan times. Lubya Boyanin is a travel entrepreneur who joins us today from her office in Sofia. She'll bring us the inside scoop on the delightfully earthy welcome that Bulgaria offers to today's curious traveler. And later in the hour, we'll get a house call from the travel medicine expert, Dr. Edward Chapnick. He has tips on vaccines for travel to remote destinations in the developing world and tips on how you can stay healthy on the plane ride over. We'll look at what's old and what's new in Bulgaria and help you stay healthy in your overseas travels. That's today on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines. Their Advantage program can help you earn miles toward your next vacation. Details are at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Bulgaria is one of Europe's most exotic and little-understood destinations. In a moment, we'll call a Bulgarian travel expert to find out what her country has to offer. It's an emerging tourist destination just layered with history and culture. And later in the hour, travel medicine expert Dr. Edward Chapnick has suggestions for staying healthy on the plane ride over and what vaccines are recommended for travelers to developing world destinations. Thanks for coming along as we explore the world today on Travel with Rick Steves. Of all the countries in Europe, Bulgaria must be one of the most misunderstood and mysterious for American travelers. I've had a certain affinity for Bulgaria over the years. I've been there on uh, eight or ten different trips, and every time I go, it's curious to me why more Americans aren't heading off to Bulgaria. Of course, there's been huge changes in Bulgaria since the end of the Cold War, and Bulgaria's won its freedom. And we're going to get up to date on Bulgaria today for travelers. And we are joined by a Bulgarian tour guide from Sofia, the capital city, Lubia Boyanin. Lubia, thank you for being with us. Uh, thank you very much for <laughs> inviting uh, me in your show. It's nice to be connected with uh, Sofia. What do you say? Doberdan is a good day, right? Doberden. Doberden. Uh, in fact, here it's already Doberwetscher. <laughs> oh, it's good evening already for you. Yes. How do you say, how are you in Bulgarian? Kakste. 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 And uh, how do you say thank you? Blogodaria. Blogodaria. All right. You have a Cyrillic alphabet there, so this is another uh, adjustment for American travelers. Lubya, you've been uh, a tour guide in Bulgaria for how long now? Uh, in fact, I'm an engineer by profession, but I'm guiding tours more than 15 years. 15 years. Since 1992. Oh, it's already it's, uh, 16 years. <laughs> since, uh, since really the beginning of freedom in Bulgaria. Yes. I should change my profession because I was uh, trained to work with the metal construction for a very heavy factories, and the factories has been closed. The institute where I used to work was closed, and I had to change my profession, and I, I had to study English. And you, sorry for my English, because I never studied in a school, in a normal school English language. Always my English was thanks to all the hundreds of people who I guided. Anytime they added a new word for me, so for 16 years, I'm I supposed to speak English, but maybe with some mistakes. Sorry for that. So you're a tourist. They teach you the, the English words then? Yes, yes, because I'm not only a guide, but also we're doing... Uh, the, the biggest fun of our profession is that we like very much the country, and we're doing uh, uh, different adventures here 
trying to not to to be according to the official, you know, the more classical tours of Bulgaria. And after that, we're guiding them. And this is why it's it's so it's a big fun to realize your dreams. Now, Lubia, when you are leading tours around uh, Sofia and Bulgaria, from what country do most of your tourists come? Um, to be honest, in the 1990s, most of the guests came from the United States. After 2001, uh, we have more Europeans. So since, since 9-11. The last, two, the last two years, Bulgaria, you know, Bulgaria joined Europe last year. And for the first time, we had uh, numerous guests from Europe, but they're having Bulgaria as a destination for holidays for uh, ski vacations or for uh, seaside. The Europeans are coming to Bulgaria then for uh, skiing and for uh, fun on the sun on the beach. Yes, exactly, exactly. And they're numerous. Um, but uh, not many of them um, like to do a cultural tours around the country or to see the culture, the traditions, which is a little bit pity because Americans are the ones who are more interested in culture in 1990s. I remember we had so many uh, absolutely unforgettable tours of Bulgaria to see the villages, the village life, uh, people, the traditions, the folklore, the songs. Unfortunately, nowadays, it's, it's for the total Bulgaria. It's something like uh, we are, again, uh, one of the forgotten countries. <laughs> oh, that's too bad. It's interesting that you would say that all of the Europeans coming today are, are coming for simple pleasures, uh, going to the beach or going skiing. And before, when the Americans were coming, they had a more curious about your culture and they wanted to take yes, the guided yes. tours. If somebody is coming to Bulgaria, what would you say are the, the reasons to come? What are the highlights for an American visitor to be thinking about for their itinerary? I would say, you know, it is the, the spirit. I had a, a very interesting comparison uh, of one of our American guests who visiting Bulgaria. He was a person with a practice, and he said, I feel in Bulgaria like this is France of the best years of France of 1950s and early 60s. Uh, so I can say that it's a spirit in Bulgaria because we have everything. For guests, we can offer a lot of uh, history, archaeology, for those who are interested, we can offer a, a nice architecture, absolutely delicious food, very nice wines and very cheap wines to, to drink and to enjoy. We have many spa centers with uh, thermal water, a good curative places. People could relax for a very cheap price compared to anywhere in the world. And, and beautiful nature. Luba, do the Europeans come to Bulgaria because it is less expensive? I think this is the main reason at the moment, for the, especially for the skiing and for the holidays at the beach. So Bulgaria is a budget destination, and you may have heard that our dollar is not very strong now, so maybe we would find um, the studinki and the, and the lev would be less painful for us to spend. You still have the studinki, right? Those are the pennies in Bulgaria. Yes, yes. Studinki. Yes. Luba, what year did Bulgaria uh, win its democracy and its freedom? 1989. Now, when you think about the changes before and after 1989, are there good things that you remember before 1989 that you miss today? To be honest, there are some good things before the changes. And because I was very young at that time, you know, always everything when, uh, when you're young, everything is more positive. So what I like in the time before, it was a very rich cultural life. A rich cultural uh, We had uh, many opportunities to go to cinema theaters, uh, to have a very nice books, uh, to have opera almost every day, the opera performed. Also the education, the schools, the education was much more stronger than today. 
because the teacher had to respect, and Bulgarian students are always very good <laughs> everywhere in the world, but in Bulgaria, the schools are in a very high level before the changes. And I would say the safe uh, medical opportunities, because if you are sick, nowadays you need to have a medical insurance. In the past, everybody was insured anyhow, so you need uh, some very small thing. You go to a hospital, you go to a doctor, and you receive a help. The help was more human, I would say. And today we have uh, private clinics, which is very expensive, but they're giving a very, very good opportunity for people who have money to be cured, which is good. But uh, also for the other people, um, some of the hospitals, the medical uh, services, uh, not so, you know, a little bit scared. You should pay. So it's for elderly people, for people without normal money, you know, and who are not insured, who have not money to have a medical insurance, it's quite complicated and difficult. But the rest, the freedom that we have, and uh, I have to be very short and brief, uh, nowadays, finally, after many years of changes, almost 20 years of changes, next year we're doing 20, uh, finally we have a rich cultural life again, which uh, makes me very happy because Sofia is like a cultural center of I would say the southeastern part of Europe, as every night we have a performances. At the moment, it's a film fest, international film fest in Sofia is going. All right. um, there's so many activities, and the theaters are full, so if you have uh, to find a ticket for the theater, you should buy it uh, one month uh, at least uh, before. So this is interesting. There are some good parts before the big changes years, and there's uh, some good parts about the new freedom that you have. Also, you joined the European Union just a, a short time ago. Is that good for Bulgaria? Uh, you know, it is good for small countries with an economy that needs to be more developed. It's good because we have some support from European Union for different programs, projects. Uh, our roads are now very good, in good conditions. So for the small country, it's good to be European member. So you are a net receiver from Brussels. You are receiving money from Brussels to make your roads better, <laughs> right? to say that, but uh, the money has been stopped uh, a few days ago. <laughs> it <laughs> has? Week. Oh, no. So you had <laughs> some money they, to make the roads. The Europeans expected some corruption. <laughs> oh. So we have to be checked. <laughs> oh, they were but, worried about how carefully you were using the money as it came into your country. I was going to ask you about that because you have this corrupt sort of mafia in Bulgaria that goes back to communist times, doesn't it? Uh, yes. Tell me about yeah, the wrestlers. They are much or less connected with that time. Are these professional wrestlers, or what is the, the connection with wrestlers and the mafia and corruption? Oh, it is a, it's a funny story, but it's a true story, because in the communist times, uh, Bulgaria was famous for a very good wrestlers, for a very good weightlifters. Usually the high-level, high-rank uh, communist leaders, they had the bodyguards who are wrestlers or who are from this society, and when in 1980s uh, the wind uh, of uh, perestroika came, uh, so they very quickly, uh, the, the communist leader has realized that they should open a companies and they should put on the top of the company, like a president, those wrestlers or weightlifters from one side. This is how very famous sportsmen of Bulgaria became um, owners of uh, big companies, became for a very short time uh, billionaires. This is from one side, and from the other side it was the black, uh, you know, the the black economy. So these wrestlers were um, uh, the bodyguards of the politicians in communist times, and they became powerful themselves uh, with freedom? 
um, because they had the money. They operated with money of all of us. Wow. And so the money of the country, the money of party, before before the changes, before 1989, uh, most of those money uh, disappeared from the public, uh, and they came in the private pockets of those companies. So did the communist powerful people become powerful people in capitalism after freedom came? Uh, most of them, yes. So what they say, my Bulgarian friends told me the music changes, but the musicians stay the same. <laughs> Have you heard that before? <laughs> Um, I never heard this before, but it's very sweet <laughs> and exact. <laughs> well, we're talking sweetly about Bulgarian politics, economics, and travel, and we're joined by Luba Boyanin, who's on the phone with us from Sofia, the capital in Bulgaria. Luba Boyanin is our guest. She's on the phone from her office in Sofia, Bulgaria. We'll continue our conversation in a moment about fascinating Bulgaria, where nodding no will be taken to mean yes, where the local pennies are called studinki, and where stuffed peppers are an edible art form. And stay with us for an ounce of prevention with Dr. Edward Chapnick. He'll join us shortly with tips on staying healthy while traveling to the most distant corners, and he'll bust a few myths about health risks on the plane ride over. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines. New vacation options in Latin America, plus getaways in the U.S., Europe, and the Caribbean are at aavacations.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today we're traveling through Bulgaria, one of the mysteries for Americans in Europe. And actually, I don't think it should be. Bulgaria is ready for prime time. They've had their freedom for nearly 20 years now, and there's lots of tour guides ready and eager to show you around, like Luba Boyanin. Luba, you're a tour guide in Sofia, is that correct? Yes. And uh, what is it like if a tourist comes and wants to have the help of somebody like you? How much does it cost to have you for a guide for half a day? For a half a day, it is 80 level, which is 40 euro, and I have to translate now in dollars. It's a little bit difficult because every day the dollar is down. I'm sorry for that. We are too. I, I can translate for you very quickly. 60, <laughs> uh, 40 euros is 60 dollars because it's 1.5. So about yeah. yeah. So you to hire a guide like this you. Is for, this is for the tour in Sofia. Yeah, and that would be half um, a day. Almost is more than four, four hours because we never look at the hours. We are on a on the disposition of our guests, and if the guests like it, the tour, and we enjoy very much that our guests enjoyed the tour, so we can work for eight hours. And one day, I was I remembered it was uh, three weeks ago. We started in the morning, and we finish at after midnight, at two o'clock a.m. Because you are hungry for people <laughs> with a curiosity for your country. Yes, yes, it's a big happiness when you see people who enjoy uh, what they're seeing and. 
they enjoy the, the life here. As a tour guide and a travel teacher, I want to really stress this to our listeners, that the happy irony is the more valuable a tour guide would be in Europe, the less expensive they are. You go to Bulgaria, you need a guide. It's more fun with a guide. And for $60 for half a day, you get somebody as charming and knowledgeable as Luba. And, uh, you know, you'll have lunch together, and pretty soon you're going to be enjoying a, a friendship as well as the tour guiding relationship. If people are thinking about Bulgaria, Luba, what makes Bulgaria distinct? Why is it unique for a traveler? Because the first, it is position of the Balkans. It's position which connected the east and the west, north from south. It, it is kind of connection. I would say the key to Europe, the key to culture, to, to nowadays culture, they comes from the Balkans. And what makes uh, interesting Bulgaria, that's the absolutely unique combination of all the religious combination of Christianity, pagan faith, very strong pagan faith we have. Muslim religion, which is influenced here because uh, we were under the Ottomans for 500 years, and also we, we had the many Muslims who are living in Bulgaria, and they're very, very interesting. You know what, what I like for Bulgaria, being for 500 years, being in the Ottoman Empire, the good, the positive for the Ottoman Empire was the fact that we were like in a cage. We have preserved our traditions from medieval times because the Turks, they permit the Christians to keep their faith, the language, and Bulgarians in that time, in the Ottoman period, for 500 years, they lived in a close society. They didn't travel to Europe so much, except the very rich merchants. But being in the close society, they succeed to preserve a lot of uh, traditions, costumes, celebrations, the patriarchal way it was before. Then we were under the communism, you know, and again we were like in a cage, so we preserved without many contacts abroad. And this is why I would say Bulgaria is absolutely unique country of all those celebrations. Even if you want to, to see the good architecture from the Ottoman period, you should not go to Turkey, you should come to Bulgaria, because we have a villages which preserve the Ottoman architecture better than in Turkey. We have a Turkish traditions, if you're interested, of culture and um, the, the traditions, for example, of the Muslim religion. It's better to come to Bulgaria and not to Turkey, because if you come to Bulgaria, you can see in the villages, in the mountains, Muslim villages, the traditions which were saved uh, the same way as they were before. The Turkey developed. So I would say that this is what Bulgaria is unique, and we very much enjoy to show our guests uh, the difference. Now, uh, Luba, when you say you have a strong pagan culture, what does that mean? We adopted Christianity quite later, but in the Christianity, the pagan traditions are very strong. I would say that in our traditional life, we have a winter celebrations, we have a spring celebrations, and the summer celebrations, which are influenced by the old pagan rituals connected with the Thracians and the Greeks, Dionysus, Dionysus, how you say in English. Dionysius, oh, oh, the religion uh, of Dionysus, yeah. Dionysus traditions were still alive in our country. For example, we have for the New Year, around New Year, we have a Mummers. Uh, you have in in United States a Mummers in Philadelphia, the Mummers Parade. Oh, Mummers, yeah. Mummers men with masks. And we have absolutely well-preserved Mummers. Those are men with masks who put a mask, and with a lot of bells, they jump to protect village from bad spirits. Oh, we can Every all use village, a little bit of that. The mummers, the costumes are different. It is in the winter time. Then those, those mummers, they have to push away the bad spirits. Then we have a midwife day. Midwife day is the, the woman. Midwife is a mediator between the life 
and the life after that. Uh, so she's the one who delivered the babies, and she's the one who, as a mediator, has to be also clean from the bad spirits with the water, and this is very, very nice tradition. Usually in January we're celebrating. Then we have to help the sun on the way to the summer to have more energy. And how to, pr- how to, how to help the sun? We are going outside of the village, outside of the towns, on the top of the mountain, where people made a big fire, like bonfires. And these bonfires, they give more energy to the sun because it's, the celebration is connected with the day of St. Athanasius, the last days of January. Old calendar celebrates St. Athanasius, the 28th of January. Yeah. Uh, then we started with the spring events. In February, we're celebrating the day of the, the saint of the wine and the vineyards. Uh, with every village uh, choose one man who is the king of the vineyards, who is like Dionysus, uh, decorated with evergreen, and around him are only men and women were decorated with evergreen who drink from some barrels of wines. And this is amazing event that is not, not very popular. There's no other country in Europe which is celebrating this kind of celebration. We have um, the cheese festival or Sirni Zagovezni called Forgiveness Day again with the mummers, uh, but this time the spring mummers also with masks to present the resurrection of nature, coming resurrection. Okay. Um, Luba, it's amazing. There's a lot of pagan culture still strong woven into the Christian culture. Of course, when yes. we're thinking about Bulgaria, as you mentioned, it was in a mothball because of centuries of uh, part of the Ottoman Empire. And then, of course, it was uh, very subservient to the Soviet Union for a couple of generations, which kept it from having influence from the West. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today we're traveling through Bulgaria with uh, Sofia Tour Guide. Sofia is the capital of Bulgaria. Luba Boyanin. Luba, when an American is thinking about going to Bulgaria, first of all, is a visa necessary or just a passport? No, just a passport. Of course, I guess, because Bulgaria is part of the EU, right? And you mm-hmm. do not have the euro, but you have your own lev. What is it? Yes. Two, two levs for one euro? Is that the idea? About. It's a day idea. When you come to Bulgaria, and if you have maybe seven or ten days, how would you make an itinerary? What would the priorities be? If people are for first time to Bulgaria, we include the most famous sites of Bulgaria, which is the museum towns, Sofia, of course, the Sofia museum towns, monasteries. Bulgaria is famous for very beautiful and painted monasteries, decorated with nice architecture, absolutely obligatory in all of the tourist attractions something with the Thracians. The Thracians are local tribes who lived and who were very sophisticated uh, in the time of the period of the second millennium to uh, the time of the Roman conquest. The most famous is Spartacus. The Thracians were about 1,000 years before Christ then? Yes. This is the first written sources mentioned about the Thracians, 1,000 before uh, Christ. And you mentioned Spartacus. What does Spartacus have to do with Bulgaria? He was born here. He was a Thracian. He was from the Thracian tribe, and he was, you know, the very famous uh, slave. Yeah, but you said the Bul- you said the Bulgarians are very agreeable when there's a, a conqueror like with Moscow. But Spartacus was not very agreeable. Uh, Bulgarians are very brave soldiers. Ah, okay. you know, we have never, even in the wars in the 20th century, during the First World War, we had the bad politicians and good soldiers. We have no any battle lost by by the soldiers. At the same time, as the politicians were very bad. The diplomats didn't do their job. Uh, Bulgaria felt in the national crisis. 
and lost the territories, unfortunately. Ah, so when you lose a war, it's not because of the soldiers, it's because of the politicians. Yes, we had the very bad politicians, and this was the politicians who did the policy with the Russians. <laughs> I got it. And with the Soviets, not with the Russians, with the Soviets. So now, to make this review, if you have a, a first trip to Bulgaria, you want to see the capital, Sofia. You'd want to see Plovdiv, which has the best Ottoman architecture, I think, and it's the most charming city, uh, I, I think. Not only not only the Ottoman architecture, but Plovdiv is uh, like a cultural capital of Bulgaria with layers of uh, different uh, civilizations. So that's the you second city. You can see Romans city. very well there, the Romans, you can see Byzantines, you can see uh, the Ottomans and Bulgarians. And then you want to go to the painted monasteries in the mountains. Uh, Rila Monastery is the best monastery. Rila Monastery, yes. Rila Monastery is the biggest, the largest one of the Balkans. Yeah. Uh, from the 19th century, the buildings are amazing. We include also Bachkovo Monastery. Bachkovo Monastery, it is a place, according to Elizabeth Kostov and her book, The Historian, um, they also has been connected with the Dracula. Dracula. Okay. Nah, Romania gets Dracula. <laughs> but also we have many legends about I know, but Romania is desperate for publicity. So give give Dracula to Romania. Bulgaria has really exciting charm. But, you know, I think the Black Sea coast, Varna, is very famous because in communist times you had no opportunity to go anywhere else, so everybody had to go to the Black Sea coast. And it's, it's sort of um, overrated. I think, uh, what do you say about the Black Sea coast? Uh, the Black Sea coast, uh, it's uh, very different because we have uh, sand beaches and we have uh, rocks like Britain. So we like very much uh, Black Sea Coast. But the people in my age, because now I'm, you know, the age that's over <laughs> the middle, uh, we like uh, the Black Sea Coast before. Nowadays it's overcrowded by uh, new buildings, new hotels. Yeah. And a little bit it's not a holiday, real holiday. Communist times it was more elegant and genteel for you, huh? It was not crowded, and the beaches were fantastic. This okay. is what we like it. Now, if you want to go to a beach, there is no um, any desert beach. You know, in the past, we had uh, sandy beaches without many people, and you can feel alone, and you can feel the freedom okay. of uh, the Black Sea coast with a very fine sand, like in Riviera, like in France, for example, the beaches in France are in the good resorts. Nowadays, Everything is overcrowded with hotels. Hotels are very luxurious, uh, four- and five-star hotels, full with, uh, you know, there's a cheap package uh, offers. For the quality of the hotels, the price is absolutely nothing. But they're overcrowded. So you have on the beach thousands of people, and maybe per square um, mile of beach, you can see millions of people there. <laughs> Luba, if I'm your guest for one night in Sofia and you want to take me to a good dinner, what would we be certain to eat for Bulgarian cuisine? If you like traditional food, I definitely I can offer skara, <laughs> which is a grilled barbecue, uh, kebabce, kifte. Our cuisine is influenced by the Turkish cuisine, so we have uh, shish kebab, we have uh, nice grilled dishes. Uh, we have uh, fantastic salads because uh, still the vegetables, uh, most of them are organic, and the taste is um, sweet. The tomatoes are sweet, and uh, some stew, which Bulgaria is famous with meat stew, a lot of vegetables. Uh, also, we have feta, the cheese. The I use the, the cheese, wrong yeah. word, feta. It's very famous. And yogurt. Yogurt has to be included, definitely, because it is the country of yogurt. And when we are thinking about Bulgaria... There's one little town famous in the mountains because everybody there is a uh, cheapskate, Gobrovo. Tell me, uh, tell me about Gobrovo. Uh, 
Gabrovo uh, developed in the 19th century as a big craftsman center, and people who were very rich, they were quite stingy and famous for their stingy jokes. Tell me a, uh, tell me a Gabrovo the, joke. The symbol of Gabrovo is a cat without tail. Uh, and you know what, why the, the cat has not a tail? Because in the winter time, or when the cat needs to go out to save a time for open and close the door, they just cut the, the tails of the cats. So many jokes about Gabrovians, and one of my favorite jokes is the one uh, husband returned home very, very tired, uh, hardly breathing, and the wife asked him, what's happened to you? And he said, you know, I decided to save uh, money for the tram, and I, I run, follow the tram. And the wife was so serious looking at him. He said, why you do this? You should save more money running, follow the taxi cab. Oh, that's a good uh-huh. Gubrovo joke. I like it. And I love the cat one. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're traveling through Bulgaria with Luba Boyanan. Luba, you must have guided some interesting people over the year. Who's the most interesting tourist you ever guided around Bulgaria? Usually I don't like to say who are my guests because sometimes it's a confidential. But between most interesting people, I would say the king of Bulgaria. You guided the king uh, of Bulgaria? I didn't the know there was a king of Bulgaria. Oh, in 1946, when they had to leave the country after a referendum, but the referendum was not very clear. So this is why in the, in the society, in Bulgarian society, uh, the young child who on that time was the king of Bulgaria, and today he's, uh, you know, in Bulgaria, living in Bulgaria, uh, most of people uh, considered uh, him as the king. And... For me, this was the most amazing uh, opportunity to be the guide and to, to travel with, with him on the tour of Bulgaria. At the same time, it was very complicated, very difficult, because uh, uh, the most knowledgeable person, uh, educated, uh, with uh, perfectionist of everything, and so white-minded uh, person, uh, you have to be very careful what you say, how to do the things, and this is why I appreciate very much the attention that he came with his guests on the tour organized by us. Was he, was he a good uh, student? Uh, yes. <laughs> and and yes. what did you teach him? It is an interesting question, what I teach. Me, I think he teach me a love of Bulgaria. He taught you a I love say of Bulgaria. I was, I was a student, almost a student during that tour. <laughs> so he is a charismatic uh, figure for Bulgarians, this king of Bulgaria. Yes. Yes. And you yes. said he thinks white as opposed to black. What does that mean? Uh, because he is always positive. Okay, so he's a he's, white thinker. He's always positive. positive. He likes Bulgaria, and he thinks really, he thinks white. Uh, and we all of us, we think white. We should think white because, uh, in, you know, in the life there are so many uh, sometimes uh, difficulties, and especially when uh, our country is in the transition period. It is very, very difficult to be in the transition, to know that you have to change your mind first, and then you have to change your life. Sometimes it makes uh, very bad thoughts. Right. People to survive really have to, to think white. And I, I think that uh, one of the people who are more positive than anybody else, this is the king. So for you, a Bulgarian enjoying this new freedom, looking ahead to challenges and opportunity, yes. you are thinking white. Yes. Me too. Thank you very much, Luba Boyanin, for an insight into your beautiful country, Bulgaria. 
Thank you very much for this interview. If you want to connect with Luba on your visit to Bulgaria, you can see her website, lubatours.com, L-Y-U-B-A-T-O-U-R-S.com. Благодаря. Благодаря и довиждане. Надявам се да се видим скоро. I hope we can meet soon. Thank you. You're very welcome to Bulgaria. Okay, добър ден. Довиждане. Up next, Dr. Edward Chapnick of the Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn offers us an ounce of prevention for staying healthy in our travels to some of the world's most challenging destinations. And he'll also talk about what we can do to stay healthy on the plane ride overseas. 877-333-RICK, that's our phone number, and email us at radio at ricksteves.com. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Hi, I am Parini Beretsatelko. I am from Hungary. I'm going to tell you a Hungarian tongue twister. Réparetek mogyorú, korárreggel ritká rikkant arigó. In English, carrots, radishes, peanuts, early morning, quail seldom chirps. In Hungarian again, réparetek mogyorú, korán reggel ritká rikkant arigó. That's good, thank you. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. No matter where you're traveling, you need to travel smartly when it comes to your own health. So we're joined today by Dr. Edward Chapnick. He's uh, the director of the Division of Infectious Diseases and the head of the travel medicine program at Maimonides Medical Center in New York City. Dr. Chapnick, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. For all my life, when I travel, especially in the developing world, I've had to check in and see, you know, what shots are required and so on. How has the field of travel medicine changed in the last, uh, you know, generation? I think the most important way the field of travel medicine has changed is the availability of many new preventive vaccines um, that protect against a number of common and specific travel-related illnesses. But the most important point is the basics haven't changed all that much. And the basics include things like food and water safety and proper use of insect repellents. And that's something that hasn't changed for a very long time. So if you're a smart traveler knowing just how to stay healthy in the regards of what you eat and drink and uh, what kind of uh, insecticides to put on you, uh, you're, you're going to lessen the need to go to the doctor or take that medicine. Is that right? Exactly. There's a lot more things that there aren't specific preventive measures available for than things that there are. Uh, But the general preventive measures, which really just come down to common sense, um, are very effective. If you're just going to Greece, let's say, or Spain, do you need to go into a medical travel center and be concerned at that that level? Or where does your service really apply? The most developed countries, such as those of Western Europe and North America, um, general food and water safety measures are really enough. And one thing that's often forgotten when we travel is that the most common reason people need medical attention while traveling is accidents. And a lot of us tend to get a little more careless when we're on vacations. 
Right. So paying attention to the basics like putting on a seatbelt when you get into a car is really important to do. I imagine you've heard some scare stories about people who were careless in that regard. Let's talk about shots, though. Where are shots required, actually, in general? In general, shots are required for travel to areas like Central and South America, Africa, uh, the Indian subcontinent, the big part of Southeast Asia. And there are, are even a few things that are indicated for travel to Eastern Europe. How does one find out where exactly uh, a shot is necessary? Do you ask your travel agent? Uh, do you uh, see the tourist board? Or do you call your, your own local doctor or what? All of those are reasonable sources of information. Probably the best place to find the specific information about the place you're going, uh, the Centers for Disease Control has a very good website and call-in number. What is the Centers for Disease Control website? Do you know off the top of your head? Yes, it's cdc.gov. Good. CDC for Center for Disease Control.gov. So go there. If you're going to um, uh, Costa Rica and you wonder, you can find the definitive answer there. I'm talking with Dr. Chapnick from uh, New York. And uh, Dr. Chapnick, what about this uh, old uh, the yellow vaccination card that I traveled with for, for years? Do people still use that when they're on the road? Is that still required? Yes, the yellow vaccination card, it's actually recently been updated. A new version of it is now required, but that card still is in existence. And for the countries that require yellow fever vaccination for entry, and again, the CDC website is a good source to find out which countries those are, that yellow card properly stamped is still required. So if a shot is required to get into a country, you have to prove at the border you've had that shot. And with this, what is it called, the International Certificate of Vaccination, is that right? Yes, that's right. If you're going to get the shot, you still have to go to the border with proof you took the shot, right? Correct. And the only one vaccine that's still required for entry to some countries is the yellow fever vaccine. With one exception, huh. that being the meningitis vaccine for people going to the Hajj in Saudi Arabia. But other than that, there are no requirements. And I'm not going to get invited to the Hajj in Saudi Arabia, I don't think. <laughs> right. Now, Dr. Chapnick, what's the difference between a required shot and a recommended shot? Now, I've heard that a government requires shots of visitors in order to protect its people against you, and it recommends shots to protect you against what you might encounter in that country. Is there anything to that? It's partially true. The required shot, that being the yellow fever shot, is to protect people in that country, but it's also to protect you because yellow fever is an untreatable and potentially fatal disease. So with that one, it goes both ways. You don't want to mess around. The recommended <laughs> shots are more to protect the traveler than the people there, but also can serve to protect people in that country. If a country recommends a shot, would you take that seriously? Personally, would you take that as a kind of a, a requirement almost? I would, because I'm a very strong believer in the benefits of vaccines, and that's why I recommend the CDC website, because that's right. something by, or it comes out of a United States government agency, and what's recommended there is clearly for the protection of the travelers. When somebody has a prescription medicine and they're going to be traveling for an extended period, they should probably bring a written-out prescription so they can fill it on the road. What is your advice in that regard? Yes, it is a good idea to bring a written prescription. It's a good idea to have a written record of all the medications you're on. 
And it's also important to remember wherever in the world you may be, a good source of finding out where to obtain that medication if you should lose it or run out or whatever is the U.S. consulate in whatever country you happen to be in. That would be one of the first calls you'd make. If you need help, you can call the consulate and they're able to point you in the right direction for doctor or medical care. Exactly. And it's important. Some people forget to do this or don't pay attention. The airlines always say, don't put prescription medicines in checked baggage. And I can't overemphasize how important that is. Wow. Good tips. Is it it still a concern that a traveler would leave home with the popular name or the, the business name of a drug here and that would be meaningless in another country where they should have had the generic name of that drug? Yes, that's a very good point. The generic name, that being the chemical name of the medication, will be universally known by healthcare providers, but the brand name might not be. Okay, so remind your doctor. The doctor should know, but you want a prescription for the generic name rather than the American brand name. I'm talking with Dr. Chapnick. He's at the Maimonides uh, Medical Center in New York, and his website will be available on our website, and we have some callers. Brian in Wisconsin, thanks for your call. Hi. um, My question has to do with fear of flying. There are so many places I would like to go to, I'd like to visit. I'd love to go to Ireland. But what's been keeping me back all these years is I've had this fear of flying. I haven't flown for about six years now. And I'm wondering, is there some type of medication I could take that could help me deal with this problem? The best thing to help deal with that specific problem is almost a gradual acclimation kind of program. And a number of the airlines have these programs where they'll do things like first have you go in an airline seat, then have you go in a plane, then have you go in a plane that's on the runway. And gradual acclimation works very well. Combined with, and this your physician certainly could help you with, medications for the anxiety that's felt when you actually will fly. So it's a combination of becoming acclimated to it, as well as supplemental medication. And Brian, I fight that fear in my own mind by reminding myself every day 30,000 airplanes take off and land safely in the United States every day. Entire years go by without a single fatality in the commercial airline industry. I know that's a little cerebral if you have this sort of a fear, but it helps me a lot. We have an email from Jan in Walnut Creek, uh, Dr. Chapnick, and she writes, uh, I always seem to get a cold after a long flight. How effective would it be for me to wear a mask on airplanes or to use over-the-counter remedies? What's your take on that, doctor? Well, my take would be the, the what the person feels as a cold is probably a lot more likely to be either a response to the dry air in an airliner uh, or perhaps an allergic reaction to something because a cold itself, the virus that causes the cold has an incubation period of several days. So even if someone were to catch a cold on a plane. It wouldn't present itself until a few days later. Yeah, these people are feeling bad upon arrival, so they've just had a a reaction to something on the plane then. Exactly. That would not be an infection if it happens right after arrival. Okay. I always remember that, you know, a flight is stress on my body, and I make a point to leave home well-rested. That helps a lot. We have Marty on the line in Illinois. Thanks for your call, Marty. You're welcome. Uh, I am not a big fan of taking antibiotics, especially on a prophylactic basis, which sometimes is recommended when you're going places that have water and uh, foodborne bacterial diseases. 
is there any evidence that taking probiotics would help to fend off or even treat any of those kinds of infections? Well, for the first part of your question, um, very few travel medicine providers actually recommend prophylactic antibiotics. What most of us suggest is a short course of antibiotics to be brought along to be taken only if traveler's diarrhea develops. So that's really treatment rather than prophylaxis. At the issue of probiotics, the first really important point is anyone who has a condition that can suppress immunity shouldn't take probiotics because they can occasionally develop infections from these things. These are live organisms. And if the immune system isn't working well, they can represent a problem. Excuse me, what's your take on these airborne medicines and just these uh, super vitamins that people take? Well, just to first finish the probiotics point, the, the evidence on whether these actually prevent infections is really conflicting. Some studies show they're beneficial. Some studies show they're not. I can certainly say they're not harmful, except for people who have poor immune function. In terms of the issue of the megavitamins or supervitamins or things like that, having adequate nutrition is certainly important, having adequate rest, adequate nutrition, all of those things. One of my nutrition professors in medical school would tell us that people who take mega doses of vitamins excrete the most expensive urine in the world because really what happens to these um, super doses, that is doses more than what's really needed, is they just pass out of the body. Right. Um, one other very important point is some vitamins that are fat-soluble like A, D, and E can actually accumulate in the body and cause problems if they're taken in too high doses. Wow. That's very interesting, and that's a beautiful quote, and I think that uh, must lead us into a question about Pepto-Bismol. We have Thomas on the line in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Hi, Thomas. Hi, Rick. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for your call. I got a question for the doctor here? Uh, yes. Uh, this kind of goes along with the, uh, the last question about uh, prophylactic use to protect against travelers' diarrhea. I'm originally from Minnesota, and uh, one of my doctors at the Mayo Clinic had told me that one thing that you can do to uh, prevent uh, traveler's diarrhea is take Pepto-Bismol prophylactically. And uh, he had said you can take it up to four times a day, either two tablets or uh, two ounces of the, of the liquid medicine, and you take it uh, immediately before uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and then once before you go to bed. And you can do that for up to three weeks. And while not completely effective, it can reduce, say, maybe 65% of cases of traveler's diarrhea. And um, it's a, it has a couple of side effects. It can blacken your stool and blacken your tongue. And it's important not to take it if you're taking aspirin uh, or if you're, excuse me, allergic to aspirin. The very first time I ever went to Europe, uh, I got terrible traveler's diarrhea, unfortunately. And I've... Uh, took his advice and did that every time I've been back since, and I've been back quite a few times, and that did seem to work, at least for me. But uh, I was wondering if the doctor could talk about uh, if, if that is indeed an effective treatment. This has been a few years. But. Okay. Thanks, Thomas. Mm -hmm. um, the answer is yes. Pepto-Bismol certainly can help either prevent traveler's diarrhea or make it less severe when it occurs. It seems, though, that if it's started very soon after the illness begins, it's just about as effective as if it's taken prophylactically. So that's really a decision the individual can make. Do I want to take this medication several times a day through my trip, or do I just want to wait until 
perhaps the illness develops, in which case, as I said, it works almost as well. Yeah, okay. and, and travelers tell me it's not the end of the world. I mean, you just kind of, you, you, you take it in stride the best you can. Thanks for your call, Thomas. Thank you. I'm talking with Dr. Edward Chapnick, who's the director of the Division of Infectious Diseases and the head of the Travel Medicine Program at Maimonides Medical Center in New York City. Dr. Chapnick, is the IAMAT, the International Association for Medical Assistance to Travelers, still a, a good resource, and is it still in business? Yes, it is a good resource, and they also have a website. I I believe that the address is that abbreviation, um, but they are a good source of information and all about specific recommendations as well as information about where to find medical care when abroad. And you mentioned uh, we've made a lot of progress on diseases and so on. Are there diseases that have been eliminated in the United States that, that remain a threat overseas that we should be aware of? Well, one very important one, because it's vaccine-preventable and a lot of us don't think of too often, is polio. Hmm. Those of us from the United States have been immunized for polio as children, but it does periodically pop up in various places around the world. And for people who do travel frequently, especially in underdeveloped countries, taking a booster vaccine as an adult is a good idea. As a matter of fact, we have an uh, email from Erica in Hudson, Wisconsin, and she says, I'm young enough to not have been immunized against polio, but some areas of travel do have polio. Uh, Is that a a common thing that people uh, or young people would be less likely to be immunized against polio? Well, not here in the United States, no. So she should have been uh, immunized against polio. The vaccine is still given. Okay. Yes. It's not the, the oral one that many of us have as children. It's an injectable one. Okay. Um, but in the United States, it is still given. But again, as an adult, the booster is a good idea. And what countries in general would that be a concern, polio? It's periodically come up in countries in... Africa, in the Indian subcontinent, there was even a number of years ago a few cases in Israel. Hmm. There even was about 20 or 30 years ago a few cases in the United States among unimmunized children, in, in a group of people who didn't immunize their children. So again, for people who like to travel... Getting one booster as an adult is a good idea. And Smart then idea. Don't have to really be concerned about which specific country. Dr. Edward Chapnick, thank you so much. This is sort of inspiring us all to get up to date on the uh, concerns we should have when we're traveling abroad to uh, make sure we got the proper vaccinations. And as you said, travel smartly just from an accident point of view and a stay healthy and watch what you eat and drink and so on. Thanks again for your help and happy travels. Thank you. Here we go. Five monkeys were playing on a bed One fell off and bumped his head Mommy called the doctor and the doctor said No more monkeys jumping on the bed 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 That is what the doctor said Well, four monkeys were playing on the bed One fell off and bumped his head Mommy called the doctor and the doctor said No more monkeys jumping on the bed No more monkeys jumping on the bed Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Our website has more information and links about this and other programs in the series, including archived audio on demand. You'll find it in the radio section at ricksteves.com. 
The people who help bring you Travel with Rick Steves include communications support from Robin Stencil, Sonia Grosset, and Ashley Southwick, with technical support from Jonathan Lee. Our theme music is composed by Jerry Frank. Special thanks to our colleagues at the Radio Foundation in Manhattan for engineering help today. I'm the show's producer, Tim Tatton. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.